0: with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 13. The Gospel of Mark chapter 13. If you're here this morning, you don't have a Bible, just slip up your hand, and we'd like to get you one. And when you get that Bible, go to the 13th chapter of Mark's Gospel. So what have we been up to in July? Well, we've been slowly working through this chapter. um, And here's what's happened. Each Sunday, we've looked into a different thing happening in the culture that affects the church if you remember last week we looked at artificial intelligence Um, so we've been looking at something happening in culture that has a certain effect on the current and the future church it's been different ideas and ideologies it's been different movements and technologies right just like ai but what jesus articulates in today's passage is going to lead us to consider something else And that is a cultural message and ideology that I believe needs to be discussed inside the church. And that message is one that we call high performance. This is a cultural ideology, maybe even a gospel of the culture called high performance. What is it? Well, it's a pressure-filled message that I believe has had a really profound influence on our time, on certainly the younger generations, but I think it's cross-generational in many ways. And um, it's hard not to see its influence kind of everywhere. And once we get to explaining it, its ideology, I think you'll immediately know what I'm talking about and recognize it, okay? So here's what I want to do. I want us to think biblically and critically this morning concerning that issue, that ideology, that message. And I want to do it by starting in today's text. The words of Jesus that we need to hear and heed are going to help us to put on a pair of glasses. That's how the Bible works. And look at this issue in today through a biblical lens. Amen? Amen? Okay. Pick up in verse 14. This is where we'll start and then we'll go back a bit and catch up. Verse 14, Jesus says to his disciples... But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to his cloak. Let's stop there. Let's remember what Jesus is talking about here. In verses 1 and 2, Jesus says something really shocking for them to hear. He says, the temple in Jerusalem will be torn to the ground. Okay? Which was a really bold claim, considering it was the largest temple at that time in the world. It's massive buildings, and there was multiple courtyards and buildings, covered 35 acres right in the middle of the capital. I mean, imagine in Atlanta. 35 acres being parsed out and enclosed by giant walls. And there is a grand and massive temple right in the center of it. It'd be a major attraction. Jesus makes this pronouncement that's going to be destroyed. And he makes this prediction. Then the disciples respond right there in the passage by asking him in verses 3 and 4, when, when will all of this take place? Because when you're told by your rabbi, who happens to be the son of God, that in your lifetime, you'll see foreign armies invade your homeland and destroy it, you would also like to know when. When. They ask him in verse 4, if you look at it specifically, what will be the sign when all these things will be accomplished? Or simply... Will happen? What's the sign to know that it's coming? Good question. Jesus doesn't give them immediate answer. Rather, he pivots. He warns them that in the midst of this coming war and destruction, there's going to be a lot of deception that's going to take place. That's why he says what he does in verse 5, if you take a look at it. First words out of his mouth after the question is not to answer it, but to say what he says at the beginning of verse five. He says, see that no one leads you astray. What's he saying? He's saying there's going to be a lot of chaos leading up to this coming war. And I don't want you and the early church that's just getting started to be led astray in the midst of it. When the Russian armies invaded Ukraine, complete chaos in that society. When war comes, you see what's happening in France. The riots over the death of that 17 year old young man. There's chaos, there's deception, there's looting, there's rioting, there's new leaders saying, follow me and trying to gain a following. There's all kinds of deception that happens when destruction is on the doorstep. So Jesus is explaining all this. And then finally, after many warnings in verses 6 through 13, he starts to get at the disciples' question about when, which is about a sign. What's the sign that we then know it's coming? He answers that in what we just read. Verse 14. Look carefully. He says. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on your house top not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. He's telling them that is the time to run. It's very practical advice. It's not spiritual advice. It's not abstract. It's not a parable. He's saying escape to the mountains. There's a lot of mountains around, surrounding Jerusalem, far from the capital, because that's where all the death and destruction is going to take place, in the urban area, in the city. And the sign of when it's time to run, in verse 14, as he says, is when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be. What is Jesus referring to? Standing where they shouldn't stand? Well, 40 years after Jesus declared that this would take place, the Roman armies, the legions, invaded the capital walls, they broke through, and then they marched to the temple. And Jesus is saying that the sign to get out of the city is that when you see these pagan armies stand where they ought not be, And that is in God's holy temple. That's the sign. Once that takes place, the city has fallen. And you need to run. Don't go back into your field. Come down from the housetop. Go. So Jesus goes on in detail to prepare the apostles, the future church, the early church. And what he says in verses 17. Let's pick up there. He says, and alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord has not, had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Jesus, historically, was not wrong on how horrible, his words, this tribulation would be. Again, from a reliable historian of the time, not someone sitting in an ivory tower today, although they can be helpful, but an eyewitness of the time, Josephus, he gives us insight on what took place. The year was 70 AD, 40 years removed from this conversation in chapter 13 where Rome took over the capital and destroyed the temple. Listen to these records. Josephus records that outside the city, as the Romans were marching on the capital, they crucified so many Jews that they ran out of local wood for the crosses. It was horrific. These were the people who lived outside the city gates. They weren't in the urban center. They were out in the more rural areas and they weren't behind the protective walls and so they were easy prey for the Roman legions as they marched into the city once they arrived to its gates the capital gates they accomplished one of the worst sieges of ancient history, of antiquity not to be graphic but to be truthful to what happened, people starved it got so bad records show that they ate their own babies to stay alive They fought each other for dirty scraps of food. There was murder. There was extreme famine, extreme disease, and there was cannibalism. And here's what's interesting. It was recorded that within the walls when all the chaos and deception is happening because they're besieging your city, it's recorded that more Jews were killed by other Jews than by the invading armies. Why? Because they're just trying to survive it was total chaos within those gates this is why Jesus uses such strong and prophetic language to describe it in verses 19 through 20 where he talked about um, tribulation that we've never seen before and so on and so forth you have to understand that this was God's chosen people God's holy city and God's grand temple And so he uses really strong language to describe how devastating it would be. Now he goes on in verses 24 and 27 to use more prophetic-like language and imagery to describe the destruction. And to understand it, we need a little help. There's a Bible Bible scholar named N.T. Wright, and it should be on the screen. He says this about those verses and what took place. He says, this is not a prediction of the end of the world though many in Jerusalem at the time must have wished it was. Had it been the end of the world, what would have been the point of running away so frantically? No, but it was the end of their world, end quote. All that Jesus describes in these verses comes to pass in four decades' time. Now, if you noticed, I skipped a major section of the passage Right there. What Jesus says in the middle of this description of coming wars, verses 21 through 23. And it's where Jesus warns the church of something entirely different. And I believe this warning is what we need to pay attention to for our time today. This is where the application is going to come in. Because you can read this and say, How in the world am I supposed to relate to Jesus warning people that their capital is going to be invaded? What is that? Okay. really sad but how does that affect my walk with the Lord and our church what's in these verses verses 21 Jesus says and then if anyone says to you look here is the Christ or look there he is do not believe it for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray if possible the elect but be on guard I have told you all things beforehand and it was exactly that again Josephus historian tells us that there was many pretend messiahs and false prophets during the Roman Jewish war this was a four-year war of 80 67 to 70 it ended with the destruction of the temple There were even well-known insurrectionists during the chaos. Remember, again, within those walls that attempted to proclaim themselves as the new king and create a following to try and lead people to peace and deliverance. These different competing voices were offering rescue. This is important. They were promising signs and wonders, Jesus says. And they were trying to gain a following as self-proclaimed kings. History shows us they all came to nothing. But doesn't a similar thing happen today? Offering rescue, promising signs and wonders, and trying to gain a following as a self-proclaimed king. Go here with me. Are there not competing voices today offering rescue from all of these modern problems rescue from your mental and emotional woes rescue from your lack of success or from your economic concerns whether it's crypto or seven steps to wealth there's all kinds of offer of rescue and aren't there competing voices today offering rescue from things like your whiteness or from your blackness or from any distinctive identity rescue from Trump and the alt-right or rescue from woke Democrats trying to steal your guns. There's all these competing voices that get gaslighted and turned way up and say, I will rescue you. I will save this country and this culture from its problems. Smaller things like rescue from your smartphone addiction. You know, there's, there's classes you can take on that now. There's a whole podcast devoted to that. Rescue from social media obsession. Rescue from the American diet or from the supposed apocalypse that's coming with enough guns and enough prepping. There are so many public voices that are trying to play Messiah today and rescue our modern society from something else that's coming in our chaotic post-pandemic world. Is there not? There's also all kinds of competing voices today promising signs and wonders things that are just miraculous that they they shouldn't happen but they do and, and, and promising this utopian like situation signs and wonders when it comes to things like gender distinction and gender fluidity full acceptance of all kinds of identities half of them just made up on the spot a world without distinctions This is signs and wonders kind of stuff. A world without definitions. A world without heaven forbid dissent. We're going to get everyone to agree on everything, or we'll cancel you and you won't be needed. Signs and wonders. We're going to make it an amazing world, bright new world. And are there not insurrectionists today claiming to be king of this new, brighter technological world? That will all be united under one ideology of climate change or NATO or victory for Ukraine or capitalism, socialism, my favorite, or all He definitely wants to be king. Or all the other isms they sell you. Today's messiahs, this is an important distinction. They might not claim to be religious, but be sure that they are every bit religious, promoting a new kind of godless religion. And they require full devotion to their ideology or you will be canceled. Some of you know this because of the spaces you work in. Some of you know this at a distance. You younger students know this in a way on a university and peer-to-peer level that older people don't get and they need to hear your stories and hear the angst maybe that you feel to be on the right side of every issue that comes up. It's a religion though. It's one where God does not exist but man's conquest as God does and one where distinctive truth and morality does not exist at all. Do I have you thinking yet this morning? Analyzing things. Our modern culture is littered with these religious figures and their ideological movements. And I see what Jesus warns of in the 13th chapter everywhere today. He says, do not believe it in verse 21. He says that they will try and lead you astray, if possible, even the elect believers of Jesus he says be on guard I've told you all of this beforehand there are false cultural Christs and phony prophets and foolish signs and wonders everywhere and there are many claiming to be king whether it's tech giants or the global elite and within this crazy world there is a core message and that's not the only message there's a multifaceted uh, just lineup of messages but there is one particular core message in ideology amongst others and that's the message of high performance and we'll spend the rest of our time heeding Jesus words in verses 23 through 24 by taking a look at it again he says in verse 23 be on guard I have told you all these things beforehand so, I want to spend the rest of our time looking at that. And I want to go to a few texts in the New Testament to help look at it through a biblical lens. But high performance is what we want to talk about. I'll start with this. In today's culture, the modern self is told not to believe in God or the gods, rather, we're told to become gods. We're told to chase after self realization. Self-actualization, self-enlightenment, whether they use those words or not. And the way to get there is to listen to all these guru, guru-like voices on podcasts who will give you all the life hacks you need to get there. Here's how you can maximize your life to be balanced and centered, or how to have endless physical and mental energy, or how to be at peace with yourself. Or how to type your personality just right and find your best self and excuse everything else that your personality doesn't fit under. (laughs) You don't do that? You do that, you just don't know. Or how to optimize your inner state for ultimate success. These kinds of messages are everywhere today. Some helpful and wise, many underneath the ideology, is a serious lie it can be muddled a muddled mix of pop science and pop psychology for hacking your life so that you can maximize your life's fullest potential here's what happens Christian we get caught on the treadmill of endless addition addition you feel the pressure I have to add this to my life and add that to my life add this to my career Add that to my spiritual life. Add this to my kids. Add that to my mental state. It's exhausting. Amen anywhere? Amen. Thank you, brother. (laughs) This message is for you today. It's not at you. You're supposed to be like, yeah, I feel that. I'm trying to just name what we swim in every day. I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching with you. I'm highlighting things that. And your head should be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I see what he said. At its root, it's a message telling you to maximize your humanity into some kind of divinity. To become like God. But don't we recognize that voice and that message? Have we not heard that kind of ideology once before? From the beginning. This was the message. This was the cultural temptation at the beginning of human civilization as Genesis records it in the artful way that it does. It should be on the screen. It says, but the serpent said to the woman, notice his words, you will not surely die For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This cultural message is one of tremendous pressure that says essentially, you're not okay. You need to improve, improve, improve. You need to add, add, add. And it's just simply out of biblical proportion. Of course you should grow. There's some truth to that. Of course you should work hard. Of course there are areas of improvement that are needed. But that's not their message. It runs way deeper than that. Let me preach with some parents here for a second. If you have children, you hear this ideology saying that you need to give maximal opportunities and experiences to your kids to maximize the recreation, their vacations, their opportunities, to maximize their friends and experiences. And if you don't, then you're not being a good mother, or at least not as good as you could be. And if you don't, you're not being a good father, building the perfect life for yourself and your family you need to elevate yourself to reach your highest self-sufficient state what they're essentially telling you is to become like God and achieve everything rather than be a humble human that's dependent on God for everything that is where the dividing line is that's the lie that we, we get this in our minds that we have to achieve everything and it's all on me. And I'm going to add this and add this and, and just elevate and elevate and elevate. Nothing wrong with growth. It's out of the biblical spirit. It's outside of that. We should be the kind of people that every success and you, and you should be working hard and achieving things. This is not a non-achievement message. Every success that you have as a Christian man or woman, you see it as dependent on God and you are grateful to God for it. It's a different attitude, ideology, spirit by which you live and see things. Doesn't mean you're not chasing, doesn't mean you're not working hard, but you do so with a prayerful spirit. You do so with a dependence on God. That that, that when there's the smallest amount of success, your first reaction is to go up. Thank you, Lord. I love the men and women, and I've gotten to know them. That the smallest things in life, they thank the Lord. I'm not talking your weird grandma says, thank you, Lord, for that parking spot. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when they come to a meal, there's genuine gratefulness, not just a blessing. That when they get to go and have some recreation, play a sport, go on a walk, they're just filled up with gratefulness because they they live in such a way that they know all things come from him and are going back to him. He is the center point of Of all reality. Everything I see, touch, taste, and smell has come from the love and goodness and generosity of God. And so every meal I have, every little success, every precious moment with my child, it's a gift, it's a grace from the loving one. They're open, they're humble, they're dependent, grateful, filled up. They're not striving and adding and nervous and angsty about how I'm going to do this and accomplish that and God has me I will work hard because of the grace of God within me it's subtle that's what I'm trying to show you it's a subtle distinction but wow it's a massive chasm when you look at it through the lens of scripture Pastor John told me to get rid of all my podcasts. No, I didn't. But listen, with a biblical lens. I look at all this, y'all, this cultural message of high performance, high pressure, and I just think, well, no wonder everyone around us is exhausted. Exhausted. When I step back and try and analyze the culture, two things come to mind, exhausted and confused. Exhausted, we're tired people. And there's just a lot of confusion. That's what happens when you say truth doesn't exist anymore. I mean, that's the biggest baloney I've ever heard. This fallen culture, culture is a good thing. God told us to build culture, go out, take dominion, cultivate. But we live in a fallen culture. And it is so childish. College students, you need to hear this. I remember being in my 20s. We all need to hear this. But, But we look at culture and what's on the right side of history and what they say is good and what they say is bad and what they say is the good life and what we should be chasing. And it feels like it's like gospel. It's like, oh, this must be the way the world is. But you take one tiny look at history and the culture has changed its mind on all of those things it's preaching to you so many times over in just 30 years. It's childish. Handle the culture appropriately. Its messages, its things are good, they're God given. Music, art, good food, your vocation, swimming pools. Go on and on recreation just signed up my kids Ken and I are coaching boys soccer and then who am I coaching oh I'm coaching with my brother uh, girls soccer it's like this is amazing I love that like God gave us the creativity to create rec leagues this is awesome it's a great dynamic of culture but we live in fallen culture and so you have to heed the words of Jesus say in verse 23 be on guard be on guard I believe the church needs to be talking about these kind of things. And some, many of you have told me that I really appreciate what you've been talking about. And I believe we need to call it out. We're supposed to be the prophets of today. Humble. God ordained. We're supposed to have a prophetic-like voice in today's culture. Not to damn it, but to uplift it. To God's vision, not, not, not ours. We need to discern. These messages, we need to describe them like we're doing today. We need to divorce from them. We're the ones, by God's grace, that have eyes opened to see these kinds of things. That's how the New Testament talks about it. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, if we could go to that. Look at this language. It's about our eyes being opened and those who have yet to be united to Christ not being able to see. When it comes to these deeper matters, it says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The light of the gospel to know that there is a loving God who is filled with grace who has suffered and died to give us new life and complete forgiveness in his kingdom. That means you don't have to strive, but you can rest and work, not from your self-will, but from the will of God. It says they're blind to the message. It's hard for them to see it until it's shared with that power of the word. And so, I, I was younger, I was 18 when I came to faith, so I didn't feel a lot of that cultural pressure you get into in your 20s, 30s, 40s, and beyond. But I can imagine if I was just locked down like in an air compressor, just being beat down, and I felt some of that pressure even as a Christian, and I didn't have the wherewithal to know that there was an alternative, an alternative way to live, to be, to love, called the gospel and its church. Acts 26 says it this way. Jesus gives Paul his assignment. He says, I'm sending you to open their eyes. There's that theme. So they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. We are the prophetic church that helps humbly in opening those eyes and offering a different way to live. Now, here's maybe where I'm preaching a little bit to us. We could be like, amen, brother. Thank you for describing what's happening today. Let's be on guard. Let's move on. I got lunch. Not so fast. Want will talk about something. We would be untruthful to not admit that Christians who can rest in these gospel truths are also overperforming everywhere in many facets of life to re- reach this level or this state that is divine like but it's not Christ like there's a call to grow and mature in the Christian life absolutely read the New Testament you will see that but it has two different things it has a different means by which to grow and a different aim the means is not you the means is the grace of God it Is a Power dynamic that lives inside someone who's been united to Christ. It's the fuel of your life. And the aim is not higher state, but holiness. That is the grand aim out in front that the New Testament describes. You go higher in the Christian life by going lower in humility, and you don't get results. Rather, you're graced with Christ-born fruit. Two different things. One dependent, it's fruit from God. One self-dependent, it's just results. Jesus says it this way so poignantly, John 15. Gives you a metaphor. I'm the vine, you are the branches. He says, whoever abides in me, and I in him, that means dependent, connected. He it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You can get results, but you ain't getting fruit. Fruit that will last. What happens is that when we chase the culture's version of success and security is that we forsake trusting God, like really robustly trusting God in the process. What's happening to so many of today's Christians is that they're pursuing this culture's Instagram version of the good life or whatever it might be, and they're slapping a Christian verse on it. Like John 10, Christ came so that we'd have life and life to the full. Just slapping that on there, okay? This is inside talk. I'm talking to you now. You hear things like, you gotta be pursuing that life to the full, John 10. We've all heard that question in Christian circles. Are you living your fullest life right now? Are you living your fullest life? Are you pursuing life to the full that Jesus came to give us? Here's my my response to any well-meaning son of a gun that asks me that question. Well, by whose measurement am I pursuing life to the full? Whose measurement? By yours or by Christ's? How do you know what life to the full looks like anyway? Because we often mistake it for some version of of personal cultural success and Christianity mixed together but how does Christ who said it how does he define it in the context of his own words in John 10 well let me tell you life to the full for him looks like Christ laying down his life for the sheep and then he turns around and he calls us to do the same tells us to give our lives away like he did and take up our cross daily for the things that really matter This is the alternative lifestyle of a Christian man or woman that has a bigger vision for the story of their life than simply more addition. Rather, they want their life... Just thought of this. There's a difference in addition and blessing. There's a difference. Things will add to your life. I got an awesome house recently. Many of you have been there. Never thought I'd be in a house like this. God helped me with maneuvering when to sell, when to buy. I had a lot to throw down and deposit. I mean, just it, was just, it, it felt so divine. I give you 10 reasons why it should have never happened. We never saw that as, in the story of our life, as... Uh, that we added a home, a bigger home. There was no addition talk when you asked me and Danielle about our home. It's blessing talk. And God gave this to us. We, we prayed. We said, Lord, whichever home will bring you more glory. That's the one we want, to stay here or to go. We almost pulled out of being under contract. I almost lost all my earnest money. We weren't sure like, what to do. And we prayed that prayer. On our couch, that old tan couch we had at our old house. I already had an architect come and look at expanding that house. I was already down that road. We pray, Lord, which everyone would bring you more glory. May that be the one you give to us. That's blessing. talk. Things will add. But they're not results. They're not because you're so great. They're blessings. You worked hard. But it was the grace of God at work in you. And so... Rather than addition, the Christian man or woman wants their life to count for things that matter in the kingdom of God. They want to live a life of humility and purpose before the Lord, diligently doing their work, raising their kids, and building a legacy of blessings for others. I remember it was two days ago in, in the kitchen. Daniel every day pretty much says she really has the grace for gratefulness. She, she, every day she says, I can't believe we're in this house. Literally every day. Many times to me, many times to herself. She says, I say, I've said that every day since we've been here. And I quoted, being the pastor of the house that I am, I quoted uh, Genesis 12 to her. I said, we're blessed to be a blessing to others. This house is devoted to others. That's why we have house church there. You don't know, but you bring in all kinds of dirt and leave your cups out and your food and we're cleaning and all. I mean, It's like, that house is new. Why are we inviting 40 people over? It's not ours. It's the Lord's. When the Christian man or woman, when you get to the end of your life, you're not going to want to measure it with the measuring sticks of the world, but you're going to want to measure with the measuring sticks of Christ. Did my life count to him? That kind of single-minded focus, let me tell you what it creates in a person. It creates a state of rest, a state of peace, a state of purpose and joy, love and fruitfulness in a person. All these things that these podcast gurus promise, but ultimately cannot deliver. And so I end with this. What would Jesus say to you today if you were here? In the flesh. What would he say to you if you're worn down and exhausted? What would he say to you into your soul, directly, in the eyes this morning? I believe he would say what he's already said. He told them back then, who were worn down by different kinds of pressures and chaos. these words come to me says jesus all who labor and are heavy laden and i will give you rest take my yoke upon you not the cultures and learn from me jesus says i'm your teacher for i am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest your souls. For my yoke is easy, Jesus says, and my burden is light. Amen? Amen.